Listener Production. I don't know if this is helpful anymore. You know, maybe it's a little bit debilitating, actually, and tiring having to question yourself all the time. And is there another gas that you can run on that isn't self-doubt? I'm trying to unlearn that behaviour and have more faith in my skill and what I do. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Nakia Louie is a proud First Nations woman. She's a master storyteller and is a writer, director, playwright, producer, comedian and actor. Wow, now that is quite a CV. Nakia has also recently signed an exclusive deal with HBO to create content for them. Nakia is also a fashionista, starring on the first Aussie cover of the relaunched Harper's Bazaar magazine. Now, I've admired Nakia forever. I have a bit of a girl crush on her, and I'm a little in awe of her talent and intellect. Her latest work is the podcast First Eat. It's a thought-provoking look at what our plate would look like if First Nations people owned the land. For Nakia, the personal is always political. Well, Nakia... Finally, I know. we're in the studio together. Yes, hi. Hi. Gee, it's wonderful to see you. I know, I keep seeing you around town and I feel like heckling you, well, yelling you out did. your name at events. But yeah. you did. The other <laughs> night when wonderful Jennifer Coolidge was in town, yeah. there you were hopping into a taxi, but you got to meet her. I got to meet Jennifer Coolidge. That I must was... have been pretty cool. Yeah. Manifestation works. So it was really cool. She's been an idol of mine since I was very young. So, yeah, she was exactly how you would imagine her. Did you enjoy the talk? Oh, I loved it. It was fantastic, I loved it so much. And I loved her just honesty and just her real sense of don't give up. Yeah. And it's okay to be afraid. And we all get afraid, but keep going. Yeah. I think also too... What I loved about it was her honesty, as you were saying, and the talks about mental health being like quite upfront about depression. But also, like, she's really been slogging away all these years. And, you know, just keep trusting in your work, keep doing what you do. You strike me as someone who has manifested so much. And I mean, you are a creative powerhouse. Thank you. I don't know, powerhouse. Yes. Creative, definitely. Very creative. Um, Because you make (laughs) us think, Nakia, and you've really made me think. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Okay. No, but you You have. You made me think too. And I am very gracious for people like yourself because I know when we've had back and forth on social media where it's been, I think, a place where you can have a discourse where you feel appreciated or there's an honesty and a listening that's empathetic and... I think that's very important and valuable. And to have that publicly, I think for myself, has been so valuable. And I want to thank you for that. It's very gracious because it means, like for someone like me, it's like I think that builds community and you feel heard and that you also take a moment to listen to someone else. Because I think if you're, you know, someone like me, you say creative powerhouse, I think 
kind of like a loudmouth trying to create a platform to tell a story, you sometimes forget to listen, which is a lesson that I have been grateful to, I guess, be reminded of in the last couple of years. And I think as well, you've had to be a loudmouth. I mean, since you were a little girl, to claim space for yourself, to be heard, you've got to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really appreciative for that lesson. I Well, not a lesson. My parents always, and my grandparents, you know, my entire family really made me never feel like I had to ever be apologetic for having a voice. Definitely be responsible. Getting in the stashes, it was like, well, what did you do? What did you say? One of my first memories was my nan and my pop had this little tree out the front of their house in St. Mary's. I used to climb it and I used to yell, I'm a little Cory girl. I'm a little black girl. To like no one on the street. And I think I feel really lucky that I was raised to be a yeller and raised to be a laugher, you know, and a shouter. Because I think a lot of the times we're told to be ashamed or to be quiet if your voice is different in this country in particular. Yeah, as a way of survival, I think that was passed down to me. Because I know with your grandmother, Joan, who you were incredibly close to. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, she taught you about laughter, didn't she? And joy in the face of trauma. Yeah. She always said, "Um, what can you do if you can't laugh? And she said that pretty much every day of my entire life. And I helped my mum with family look after her when she passed away. So she was an incredibly strong, rebellious kind, generous, nosy, funny woman. Um, I often think about like, what would she have done if she was alive now, right? It would be 10 times more than I could ever achieve. She was really clever. She grew up, you know, under the Aborigines Protection Board. Life very much dictated by government policies about Aboriginal people throughout her entire life up until her death. And I say this because She was moved into a housing commission home in St. Mary's in the 1970s and was during a period where they were moving Aboriginal people from regional uh, rural areas into urban Sydney, uh, so Western Sydney. And it was in that little fibro house. uh, White termites started eating away at the house. They literally ate the house away out from under her. And it was really hard to get the house fixed and she fell through the floor and from the injuries from that fall she died. So caring for her with my mum and my family during that time was really hard because she was someone who always approached the world with such laughter. To see her life kind of end so quickly and so painfully and in my eyes so preventable It was really hard, to be honest, and, you know, it kind of, I think in a way, um, destroyed me for a little bit. I was really, really angry. I was the last person with her before she passed away at the hospital, and I plaited her hair, and I had, like, uh, moisturised her hands and put her talc on her. And at the hospital, she said to me on the bed, Key, what can you do if you can't laugh? And she told me to smile, and those were some of the last words that she ever spoke to me. And so it took a while after she passed for me to kind of realise, I wouldn't say that the anger subsided, but that anger and laughter kind of on this, like, different sides of the same coin. And so 
you know, she was someone who I think her entire life had faced so much more hardship than I had, went through so much pain in the, the last year of her life, but was still able to laugh. So for myself, I kind of see that idea of being able to create laughter and space for people, a responsibility, and maybe to also validate people's anger. You know, anger isn't a bad thing. And there's a lot to be angry for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we should be angry at things. You know, it means we're paying attention. And also, I think that's really quite a powerful message that often people respond more to laughter than to anger. And if you can reach people through laughter with a message, I think that's so powerful. Yeah, comedy feels like such a cheap trick sometimes because it almost feels like you can make people laugh with you and then you kind of hit them with like a, you know, like a little punch in the gut. But also, you know, provoking people isn't necessarily a bad thing either because it means that they're engaging and they're thinking. I'd much rather have someone kind of engage with what I'm saying, laugh and and think or or go, oh, no, I'd, I'd like get offended and then kind of just brush me away and not listen. And you make people listen with all the different sorts of work that you do. Your most recent piece of work is an amazing podcast called First Eat, which I love. Well, thank you for listening. Um, it's you and my mum. Oh, now come no, on, there's well, got to be more. I wasn't even sure she had listened to it at one point. I was like, Jennifer, have you listened? Um, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, most of it. And then she talked about the ending. She's like, no, Nika, I have listened. She liked it. And I was like, thanks, Mom. No, but it makes you think. That's what I found oh, extraordinary. You. Tell people what it's about. Yeah, so it starts off, I would say, as a genre, it's part docuseries and in a way part memoir. Uh, and that's because it starts off with the premise, what would a plate of food look like if First Nations people owned the land or had some involvement in our food systems? You know, I can tell you where my family's from, where I grew up, the land I grew up on, the people of the land I grew up on, the land that I live on, the people of the land that I live on. But I couldn't tell you any of the native fruits and vegetables of of that land or any of the food they would have cooked. And I thought that was such a massive oversight given how much land means to First Nations people, that I'd never really thought of it as a thing that generates food, sustenance. What does that mean? And so looking at that question, what would a plate of food look like if First Nations people owned the land? It became this really, really big journey into the themes of land ownership, colonization, capitalism, Black economies, First Nations economies, the history of Australia, slavery, what does farming mean, what does the future look like, climate change, much, much more because food is everything. You know, they say money makes the world go around. It's it's food, right? I'm a big believer that the personal is political and I don't know how much personal you can get than food. In doing that, though, I realised I couldn't talk about food without looking at my own relationship to food, that being my relationship with my body. So I've uh, someone who's had a very public journey with my body in terms of I had weight loss surgery. My weight's gone up and down. There's been a lot of commentary about it online. And Is it sort of that sense of why do I have to, in fact, explain this to anyone? Yeah, it is one of those things where your body does become like a public 
thing, right? And your ownership over it and your what you want to keep private, but then what you feel like you should kind of be honest about. And then, you know, one of the things I think with me talking about my own journey with my health issues and my weight loss surgery is the space that it created for other people to then maybe talk about it. I had a lot of people reaching out to me over DMs and things like that, or people who had had it and were like keeping it secret and, you know, felt like they had, you know, not lost weight the right way or they'd been thinking about uh, having the surgery or a lot of First Nations people who had had the surgery. You know, it was a talking point for something that was much bigger. So it was the journey of my body, but then that became really political as I realised it wasn't just me with someone who I ate too much and I couldn't control my eating. I was facing a lot of chronic health issues that were really, really prevalent in my family and my community. So in the community I grew up in, in um, Western Sydney, it's the highest urban Aboriginal population in all of Australia. They call uh, bypass marks your initiation marks because heart surgery is so common. My dad's quite fit. Um, he had triple bypass surgery in his 40s. Diabetes, obesity, the kind of list goes on. So looking at that, looking at myself through that prism of, I guess, the subject, I had to then look at my family's history with food. And food is so connected to home, right? When you ask people what their first memories of food are, and it's always linked to family or home, and home is linked to land. And so when it comes to First Nations people, it was a story then of displacement, of stolen land, of people having very little freedom over their bodies because they were consistently displaced. So, you know, it was a story of people trying to find a place called home, trying to then create meals to sustain and nourish the generations coming behind them. And so food then became this symbol for your values, your hopes and your dreams. That's what I think food represents. One of your favourite memories is going round to your grandmother's place and having Chinese on a Friday night all together. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a really, I'll get teary. It was so weird, Jess. I hadn't even thought about it since my Nana had passed away. And I don't know why, because we did it every Friday, pretty much for most of my life. Every Friday, we would have Chinese food from the local Chinese shop. We'd sit around this little table with the mismatched placemats and cutlery, like we'd all squeeze in and we'd, you know, share our week and we would laugh. In a way, looking back now, it gave me a sense of worth. You know, it made me feel like, you know, I had a family where we would, you know, I could listen and tell them what I wanted to do in the future. It was the table and the meal became a place of, of not just ritual and love, but nourishment and dreams. And so um, whilst I don't know necessarily what a decolonised plate of food looks like, what I do know is what a decolonised table looks like because, you know, going back from my family's journey in First State, my great-great-grandmother was an Aboriginal woman. She married a convict who was sent over here for stealing a sheep. They got married. They had children so he brought some land and, and then when he died, they had the land taken away and they were sent back to the mission. And from there, as you look through that side of my family's story, 
it's a story of people trying to find a home and create a meal. And that goes all the way to, you know, St. Mary's. And what I realized is that decolonized table is because in the face of a lack of freedom over where they got to call home, my family always were able to create a meal in a place that they made home. And to me, what an incredible act of resistance because I spent a lot of my life not feeling like I, I had a place very much at all. Because um, you were bullied in high school, yeah, weren't you? Yeah. You know, I remember the first time I was called, and trigger warning for, for using this word for people, but I'll say it because I think everyone's heard it in this country. I remember the first time I was called Abbo, and it was in kindergarten in primary school, and I went home and I asked my parents what it meant. And I can't imagine having to have that conversation with someone so young. I remember when one of my friends said that they couldn't was it share hats and play with me because Aboriginal kids had knits. And my mum made a point to then become friends with that person's mum. And we would, you know, mum would like ask them to do a play date. I guess basically make it uncomfortable, kill them with kindness. And they went on to become, you know, one of my friends. So you were always very much kind of aware at such a young age that maybe being Aboriginal to certain people wasn't a good thing, especially seeing the racism that my darker-skinned family experienced, like my father. And then when I got to high school, especially being a bigger person, it was much worse. I, yeah, used to get bullied quite a bit. My bus used to pick up two lots of high school kids. The kids from the other school would throw their rotten fruit at me off the bus and call me like a fat abo and things like that. So I used to then pretend to miss the bus and then my mum would have to come and pick me up and I would be too ashamed to tell her why. And it wasn't even until the last couple of years I explained to her why I um, didn't want to catch the bus. I used to just always pretend to miss the bus because I uh, would get bullied quite a bit on it, I guess. That was really hard. Also, I was into drama and theatre and so, your family called you a drama queen. I was didn't a drama they? queen, and I used to do you know sketches at the school assembly, and 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 I did ice skating. You know, See, that is so wonderful. Though <laughs> I, I love yeah. it. I used that to. You yeah. did ice skating. I did ice skating, and um, oh gosh, one time, my mum, who's who sews, but wasn't her skills at the time were rudimentary at best. Made me a costume. She had this sequined serpent on me that she'd used like invisible thread and also the costume was too small. And so as I was skating, my costume just starts kind of like falling off me. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) But I also too, like I have some really sad memories that really kind of defined how I felt back then. I was reading like a teenage magazine for, for young women. Like I really, really wanted to do something with movies. My first job was at a video store and I remember um, looking at the magazine and looking at my skin, I was a bit darker then, and like my little fat brown arm and holding it up against my white lace curtains and just feeling so deflated because I thought like I'm never gonna fit in. Like there is no place for me because in that magazine, there was no one who looked like me. On the TVs, it felt like there was no one like me. I remember that day just feeling so deflated. But then on the other hand, I kind of love that that ice skating theatrical teenager because even though, you know, the bullying sucked, I still managed to, I think, find my place or find things that made me happy and 
and I wasn't ashamed of it. And I think back to her now quite a lot. And I feel like I want to get teary because, you know, my nan, I was very close with my nana. Thank God for her. Like, seriously, thank effing God for how weird and unapologetic and the thick skin that she had and what I went through because I don't know if I'd be able to do what I do today or if I could have taken the risks and the chances and and had that faith in myself if I hadn't felt the lows, if I hadn't felt that that hopeless, if I hadn't felt so out of place, I probably might not have went out of my way to try and make my place quite aggressively, to be really honest. And you have though, but you did that from, I think what's remarkable, from such sort of an early age. You went to boarding school in Canada when you were 16? Younger, yeah, 15. And you see, that is massive. Jess, I had like no idea what I was doing. So I went to a place called United World Colleges. It was a kind of quite experimental school now that I think about it. But it's a chain of schools around the world based on this idea of how how can there be world peace if people don't understand each other. So I went there on a scholarship. I was the first First Nations person to attend a UWC, pretty certain. I got this scholarship. I had no idea. Like, honestly, I had no idea what I was doing. I don't think I realized I was going to a country overseas by myself until I made my bed in my dorm. I sat down and I went, you know what? I probably want to go home. So I reverse charge call. Mum and dad tell story reverse charge. I know that I'm like off by heart now. And uh, my parents were just like, uh, no, you have to stay. Like, give it a week. Give it a week. And I was so homesick. I didn't talk to anyone. They knew me as a crying Aboriginal girl. And basically, my mum stopped taking my calls. I think the last call that I had with her was, Nakia, you can't come home. That'll be effing embarrassing. We threw you a whole party. You have to stay. You have to effing stay. (laughs) And then I started just calling up every single relative I knew. And then my mum and dad were like, do not take her calls. And then after about a month, it was fine. I loved it. Was that also where you discovered your joy of storytelling and the power of words? Yeah, it was. I went over there with three books, To Kill a Mockingbird, Leah Purcell's Box of Pony, and then my dad had seen uh, The Seven Stages of Grieving by Wesley Enoch and Deborah Mailman. And so I'd heard about how great this play was. My mom was trying to get a copy of it for me. And I think she is probably illegal, but someone who knew someone had a copy and they faxed it over to my, they like... The whole they play? They copy and faxed the play <laughs> over. So I went over with this little stapled copy of, of The Seven Stages of Grieving. And so I was over there and we had a thing called National... Oh God, this is embarrassing. I don't know if I should tell you this. So we had a thing called National, it was like National Week. And so it was Asia Pacifica. We were, the Australians were in that. And uh, we, you know, people would do an act and uh, it was for about like three, 400 people that uh, represented our culture. But I grew up, you know, in Mount Druitt. Very much. I wouldn't say I'm a concrete Koori. I'm like a Bogan Aboriginal. Uh, and so I don't know that many dancers. I'd learned a few little dances, but I was really bad. And then I saw people speaking their languages and doing these incredible moving things. And I was like, oh shit, I don't have a, a language. I don't know language. 
So I call up my dad. The line was really bad. And I was like, can you tell me like how to say something in, how do I say hello, blah, 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 in, and his language is Wiradjuri, so it's not even like Gomoroi. And so I think there was a bit of a lost in translation moment. So I ended up getting up on stage and just saying words that made no sense. I was like, Piliga, Midiga, Mename is Nikia. I was so, this is so offensive. I can't believe I'm sharing it. And then I just basically said every single language word I know, like Mugez, Guna, Bure, blah, 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 and just gave it a completely different meaning. And then when we came off stage, one of my friends said to me, it's funny how uh, your language sounds kind of like English. Um, (laughs) But I tell the story, it was, you know, people said it was very moving afterwards. But like, I wanted to share with my peers what it was like to grow up as a First Nations person in Western Sydney in Australia. A lot of people had never met an Aboriginal person before and a lot of the media that I had to show them, things like rabbit proof fence, they were things that I couldn't necessarily identify with. And so I decided to put on a one-woman show for a couple of nights and from there I wrote my first play, I guess. It was called Proud Um, and it was basically a ripoff of The Seven Stages of Grieving and Box of Pony because they were the two plays I'd ever kind of read outside of Shakespeare. And so I wrote this little play and then put it on in the student centre. But you um, see, that in itself is phenomenal. You just sort of mm-hmm. say it like, oh, I just wrote a play and I did this. I mean, oh, I don't know if it was a good play. Yeah, but it doesn't like, matter. You still yeah. did it though. And to me, you thought, no, I need to keep going with this. And very much for you, storytelling is who you are. You're a storyteller. It's yeah. innate to what you do. Yes. And you have this need and desire to keep sharing your stories and because that is transformative for people. I think very much so. I think stories are how we understand the world, right? They're our greatest invention. It's how we understand each other. I think, you know, when we can't tell our stories within history... It's been very dark times, but as individuals, it's how we understand ourselves. My parents say, and my aunties and that, they were, they were like, you would be the storyteller in the village, you know, in the, in the tribe, because I can't weave, can't dance, you know, for shit. Um, like <laughs> we can ice skate. <laughs> so if I had a pair of ice skates and ice, it'd be, be all right, but I, I can tell a story. And so I think for myself storytelling, someone said this quote to me the other day, it was, it was incredible, it was um, a journalist that storytelling is radical justice. And I thought that was incredible because it is, the ability to tell your story is so empowering and the ability to be heard and to listen to other people, I think is such a political act because if we're listening to people whose stories are usually pushed to the margins, we're shifting where the margin is. And for myself, have a compulsive need to to tell stories. Again, it's like the only thing I, I can do well at and I enjoy doing it. But what I hope is by sharing my story with people that they listen to my story and they identify with it and go, well, if she can share her story and people can listen or there's a place for her, then there's a place for me too. And so it's about creating space, you know. I think the more the merrier listening to each other because I think within our society, and that's been a fantastic shift in the last couple of years, 
But within our society, it was who got to be the centre of the story and who got to tell it was, was incredibly, incredibly exclusive. We spoke about manifesting at the start. I just adore this. I saw on your Insta a picture of you, I think when you were about 13, oh. and you're wearing oh. a T-shirt. <laughs> and on the T-shirt, it's written, remember me, I'm going to be a star. Yeah, it was really stretched across my <laughs> And you're a star. I love the fact that I wore that T-shirt. Uh, that was pretty ballsy of me. Well, it was so... We got it from Patty's Market. Did you? Yeah, I'm pretty certain. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think by listening with you share so much that really it was your grandmother and your mum that gave you that sense of, I can do this. Yeah, definitely. I think my mum always said, she always, you know, responsibility was a really big thing in my family growing up. If you're going to do something, you know, do it to your best ability. You don't have to be the best, but you make a commitment, you do it. And when I told my family I wanted to write. They were like, okay, fine. But they realized it made me happy and and I did it. I'm really proud of of that. You know, I kind of said to myself, I'm gonna make myself a writer. You know, my idea of a writer was quite literally like Carrie Bradshaw, like Sex in the City. I say this to people, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I just dove into everything, into the deep end, but always with the idea of like my nan behind me of like, what can you do if you can't laugh? Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, you get rejected, you fail, like you can laugh about it. It's a funny story to tell later. You know, failure isn't a bad thing. To, it's nothing to be scared of. You just got to give it a go and then and, and try. Still don't quite get what manifesting is, but um, I'm a big believer of like you put things, I guess that is manifesting. If you say it out loud, like, no one knows what you want until you say it. So no one's going to help you get there or an opportunity won't arise unless you kind of put it out publicly. And that requires a lot of vulnerability. I guess that's manifesting. Is that manifesting? Well, it is to me. Yeah. I think ideas can lurk around in your head, but it's not really for me until you start to voice that. Yeah. That then gives it power. And because you've sort of said it out loud, just to yourself perhaps, or to other people, it then begins to assume more of a power. Yeah. Because it's only, if it's just in your head and stays in there, nothing's going to happen. It's not going to grow. I mean, now you have, it's a Hollywood powerhouse agency representing you. Yeah. You're writing for all the big streaming services. You've got a show in development. I mean, this is massive. Yeah, it, well, yeah, yes. it doesn't feel massive when you're doing it. It just feels like your job. I'll be honest, though, a lot of imposter syndrome where you have to just kind of man up. Oh, I hate that word, man up. Woman up. Show up. Just show up. Person yeah, show up. up. Person up. It was when I was doing Debutante, my first podcast, and I was in LA pretty soon after I got married, actually, and Miranda Tapsell, who did Debutante, was with me. Um, and we were calling it our buddy moon. And I went over and I was like, I'll have some meetings with some agents. No one's going to be interested in me. So I'd written a play uh, back in 2017 or 18 called Blackie Blackie Brown, the traditional owner of death. Before the play had even been previewed, it was at Sydney Theatre Company, they released some marketing material. And from the marketing material, there was a whole lot of outrage. I was, you know, people were sending me hate mail to my home, calling me a racist that I wanted 
white people to die. I just want to be clear, I do not want white people to die. But from the marketing material, lines from the play were being credited as being my words. And so it was really hard, to be quite honest. And so I, sorry, it's, I actually find it really hard to talk about because it really did, um, I'm only, I think now starting to kind of come to terms with how much that stuff really did hurt me. And so that play was actually one of my most well-received plays once people saw it. But I think the vulnerability of people judging me for a story I was telling before they even saw the story, not even listening to what I had to say, taking words out of context, it just really took away all your agency. And for me, my humanity, because my voice was being erased before anyone would even hear it, it was really hard. And so... The play ended up, you know, being a bit of a hit and it was fine. Then a couple of years later, I go over to LA. I'm like, oh, I'll have these meetings. I didn't realise I was meeting with like pretty big agencies and people. And it was that play that got me in the door. And I kind of had my pick of who I wanted to, to go with. And it was so, in a way, gratifying. And, and i got to be really honest here, like a bit of a FU because it was that play that got me my in at HBO, where I have an overall now, the companies... And I an work, overall, what does that mean? Exclusivity. So I exclusively write TV for them. See, yeah. how cool is that when you say as a little girl, the TV yeah. you knew was Sex and the City? City. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, Sopranos, oh. like all my favourite shows. And so getting to, like, even going to their offices, I'm like oh, pinch me. It's pretty cool, but it's also a bit imposter syndrome because you're like, oh, I have to pitch or I have to write a pilot. I have to write a treatment. I have no idea what I'm doing. What do I do with my hands? But you just have to do it. But that imposter syndrome, though, it's extraordinary how it comes up time and time again when I talk with incredibly talented, accomplished women. Yeah. I don't know why we do it to ourselves because you are so talented and have such experience, but there's still that question mark. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I go, like, I don't know if I'm talented as opposed to, like, quite hardworking and desperately needing validation from people. But um, it's really interesting because I think, in a way, the imposter syndrome can make you work harder, right? And so you need to, you accomplish things, like, driven by that sense of fear for myself and it's where I'm at in my therapy at the moment. For me, it's since having a child, it's like, I don't know if this is helpful anymore. You know, maybe it's a little bit debilitating, actually, and tiring having to question yourself all the time. And is there another gas that you can run on that isn't self-doubt? I'm trying to unlearn that behaviour and have more faith in my skill and what I do. But I think it's interesting that it is so ingrained in so many people Women, it's seen in a lot of First Nations people, this idea of, you know, that you're, you're not good enough and no matter how much you achieve, still a falsity. I think for a long time it was it, the imposter syndrome maybe made me achieve a lot. But um, at the moment I'm, I'm going through a little bit of a learning curve about I don't know if this is actually helping me or, or taking things away. I would have my husband sit on the other side of the computer when I would have meetings and do pictures just to be like, did that sound okay? Did it seem like they liked it? 
did you hear, can you record like every single word that they said so I can overanalyze it as I, you know, leave the meeting? Just stop doing it. It's like, this is ridiculous. Uh, and, you, you and know. And you are yeah. enough. Getting back to that idea yeah, so, yeah. of you are enough. As yeah. you are. You are enough. Yeah. Like, so I'm like, yeah. Yes. You are enough. Yeah. But it's hard. It's a hard thing to hear and to accept because it's that tension between that it keeps you going because you want to keep proving to yourself you can do more, you can be better, you can be different. But also it's that sense of, you know what, I am enough as I am, I also, as I come. Yeah. I also think Australians as a culture, we have like a very piss-take sense of humour. We're very self-deprecating. And I think as a general culture, it's really hard to be able to give yourself a congratulatory slap on the shoulder. You know, yes. it's really hard to do that because, like, we're not encouraged to do that as... You, you think know. you're too good or they're a bit up themselves or... Yeah, and then when you, you know, compound that with if you're different or if you, you know, come from a group or an identity where there has been marginalisation, where you're your worth is not at the centre and it's something that you feel like you have to work to attain, you're then starting at a deficit, yeah. Like you're starting at a deficit of like, I don't feel like I have worth. Like I'm still trying to unpack that and it's been really conscious of it, having having a child. I don't know about you, when you had your children, when you go, oh, all these things, all these ingrained things I have about myself, I really don't want to pass those on. You know, I really need to try and reframe the way I look at myself so I don't pass that on by accident, you know? Again, I think, though, that comes down to, and this is what I'm learning as a mum, is that even the fact that you're thinking, oh, I don't want to pass this stuff down, that what you're doing is wonderful and that is enough. I mean, the point is, whatever we do, we're going to stuff our kids up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we are, but as long as it's we do things with love, yeah. with compassion, and we listen, and it's about, I think, backing ourselves as opposed to thinking, oh, no, this might turn out this way or that way. Yeah. You're a beautiful mum. Oh, thank you. You thank are. You. So are you. I, and I look to other mums. I'm like, what am I meant to be doing? You keep doing you. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, the other thing. It's also about backing yourself, but doing you and doing what's right for you and for your family. I mean, you strike me as someone who's so good at tapping into your intuition and listening to what's happening in here. You do what works for you. Thank you. That's very, very kind of you. Those are wise words and I'm going to take those with me. But I think being a mum is really hard. I definitely didn't realise it is all the voices. You know, I like I remember like postpartum getting, you know, kind of scolded by by midwives for using nipple shields and this, you know, and, you know, like and you're just trying to do your best and I'm trying to think instead of going, you need to do this better or you need to change the way you're thinking because you're not doing this right. It's trying to just grow, like what an opportunity to have this wondrous little all of light in my life to shine light on the things about myself that maybe I hadn't seen before. That's why we called her Lux, because she's light. 
Makes sense. I don't know. It makes beautiful <laughs> sense. And Lux is privileged to have you as her mum. Oh, well, well, we'll we'll just we'll ask ask that in a in eighteen years when she <laughs> well when she's a teenager yeah. she'll roll her eyes and all of that. But she's very lucky to have you. We're all very lucky to have you. Oh, mwah, so much love. Yeah, thank you, you thank for you. sharing so much, and it's lovely to talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. There is so much in that conversation. I could have just kept chatting to Nakia for hours. That would have been quite a task for my amazing producer, Nick, to go through. But what a woman. And she continues to teach me so much and to challenge me to see things differently. Nakia's podcast, it is an audible original podcast. It's called First Eat. It's out now and you can listen for free at audible.com.au. It is a phenomenal listen. Give it a go. You will learn so much. Now, for more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. Share it with a friend because we love to share these conversations. Give us a rating because we love to hear from you and we love to get this podcast community going. Now, if you enjoyed this episode with Nakia, I think you will love my chat with Parla Vishada. I find it really tough to speak up and I find it really tough to articulate so many things when they happen because it brings up past trauma of being quietened and shushed or getting a little slap on the wrist for for, for being too much and, and not staying in your lane. So I think it's that that feeling, that unbelonging that has, has kind of crept in at times that I wish that it, it wouldn't. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.